Second part. The second prophecy is that the king of Assyria is going to die by the sword in his home country. Now, what does it mean to die by the sword? This is not going to be natural causes. That he's going to die a violent death back home. Okay, so, so God's encouragement is very simple. Don't be afraid. I'm going to have Assyria return home, and I'm going to have the king of Assyria die in his home country. That's the first part of this. All right, keep reading. Verse 8. So first seven verses, what's happening is we had the summit in verse 18. The first seven verses let us follow the men of Jerusalem after the summit. So how did they respond? What did Hezekiah do after all that happened? Starting in verse 8, we're going to follow the Rabshakeh and the men from Assyria and see what they do after the summit. So now we're going in the other direction. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, look, he's come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? Okay, so do you see what happens with the Assyrians? So the Rabshakeh leaves this meeting, and he goes to find King Sennacherib. Now, when he left Sennacherib, he was at the destroyed city of Lachish. But now we find out Sennacherib has left. He hasn't just stayed there twiddling his thumbs with the army. He's kept the army busy. So they've left Lachish, and they've invaded Libna. They're just hitting every village in this area. Now, when the Rabshakeh gives him the report that we have Jerusalem on the ropes, what would you expect the king of Assyria to do? You attack. This is the point. They've seen how weak Jerusalem is. The Rabshakeh was just there. There are maybe 10,000 people in the city of Jerusalem at this point. The Assyrians have over 100,000 in their army. They're weak. They're scared. So you need to get the army right now and you need, you need to invade Jerusalem. Why doesn't he invade Jerusalem? Mm, partly, there's something in, in particular why he doesn't invade. Did you pick it up when we were reading? Go back to verse, uh, let's see where we are. Verse uh, 9. And the king, this is the king of Assyria, the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia. Look, he's come out to make war with you. So, why doesn't the king of Assyria invade Jerusalem? Think, what did, what did God say was going to happen back in verse 7? God said that they were going to hear a rumor that was going to send them back home. That was what God said was going to happen through Isaiah. Now what do we find out happened? Y'all are hard tonight. What we find out happened is they hear a rumor that the king of Ethiopia is marching up with his army to invade. And so, so Sennacherib is afraid to attack Jerusalem. His fear is he'll get engaged in a battle with Jerusalem 
Ethiopia is going to come up, and he's going to end up trying to fight a battle on two different fronts, which he doesn't want to do. In fact, his fear is that Ethiopia might come up with their army and get around him and get back to his home country. And so he decides he's going to need to withdraw his army and go back home to make sure that his people are safe. And so he's going to withdraw. Now, do you see what this is showing us? You have the Assyrian Empire, which is the superpower of the day. And God is able to redirect the largest army in the world. How? Through a tiny little rumor. It's, it's like it's making the point that God, these great nations and these great kings who like to thump their chest, God can move them around like the wind moves leaves around. It's nothing for God to completely turn the hearts of kings, and it is nothing for God to completely redirect the focus of armies. Okay, so they hear the rumor, and he decides that he's going to withdraw. Okay, so now Sennacherib knows he's going to need to withdraw his army. But as far as he knows, Hezekiah doesn't know that yet. So before he withdraws his army, he's going to make one last-ditch effort to try to scare Hezekiah into submitting. And so what's happening in these verses is King Sennacherib, he's heard the rumor, he's going to go back home, but first he's going to write a letter to King Hezekiah and try to threaten Hezekiah, try to scare Hezekiah into surrendering. And that's what he's doing in this letter. And notice what he says to Hezekiah in this letter. So this is the king, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah. This is the king of Assyria speaking to Hezekiah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. What's he saying to Hezekiah? Don't believe your God. Hezekiah, if, you're, if you have prophets who are telling you that your God is going to rescue you, you better not believe them because your God is lying to you. Do you see how the stakes keep getting ramped up? So they've already mocked God. What is he calling Yahweh now? He's, he's calling the God of Israel now a liar. So it's getting, it's getting more and more intense. And you see how he presses this home to uh, Hezekiah? He says, look, verse 11, look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. Do you see this word right here? He's, he's tr really trying to emphasize this to Hezekiah. It's like he's saying, look, Hezekiah, you know what's real here. You might, be, you might be loading your people up with all this stuff about your God helping them to keep their morale up, but you know the truth. You know what the score is. You know once the battle starts, all of this, all of this God talk isn't going to do any good anymore. So you might use that on them, but you know it's not real. And you know what happens when Assyria goes to war against somebody. And what happens is they get crushed. That's why he goes on and lists out all these different nations. You know all these nations that had their own gods, every one of those nations and every one of those gods failed. So do you see how he's, he's just trying to increase the pressure on the vice grip? And what's he hoping, what is he hoping Hezekiah will give in to? The same thing that the Lord started the command from Isaiah with, do not be afraid. So his hope is that he can scare him. Once again, it worked before, he's hoping that he can use fear to pressure him again into compromising. Again, this is why fear is, is such an effective weapon from the enemy, because fear has the ability, when we give into it, to, to cause us to make unbelievable compromises. That's what he's hoping King Hezekiah will do. All right, so he writes this letter to Hezekiah, 
with more threats. So let's see how Hezekiah responds to this. Verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. We still use this kind of language today when we're talking about praying, for praying about our problems. We'll say, I laid the problem out before the Lord. And that's what Hezekiah is doing. He gets this message from the king of Assyria, and he doesn't know what to do about it. This is a bigger problem than Hezekiah can solve. This is beyond his wisdom. It is beyond his strength. And so he goes into the temple, and he takes this letter, and physically... He, he lays this scroll out before God. It's like he is laying it at God's feet. He's saying, Lord, I don't know what to do with it, so I'm asking, I'm asking you to deal with it. This is, this is a personification of what we see in so many of scriptures about prayer. Listen to Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. You see how, how Hezekiah is, in a sense, literally doing that. He takes this letter that is such a burden to him and he lays it out before the Lord. Or the New Testament picture of that is 1 Peter 5. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That's what Hezekiah is doing. He is, he is casting this care on the Lord, and he is asking the Lord to meet a need that he doesn't know how to meet. Okay, again, this is a good thing for us to do in our lives. Is there are so many times in life when we're up against situations that are too big for us. It's beyond my wisdom, it's beyond my strength, it is beyond my understanding, and the best thing I can do is to lay it out before the Lord like Hezekiah does. Say, Lord, this is bigger than me, and so I'm asking you to fix it. I'm asking you to give help here. Okay, that's what he's doing. So how does the Lord respond to this? Well, this is his prayer first. Verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Now, let's stop there for a minute. So what's the first part of this prayer? How does he start it? Yeah, he, he is just magnifying the greatness of, of God. Why would this have been a helpful thing for Hezekiah to do? What's, what's he overwhelmed by at this point? He's overwhelmed by the size of Assyria. He's outnumbered here probably 20 or 30 to 1. He's facing a kingdom that has chariots that he doesn't have and horses that he doesn't have. It's too big for him. So what does he start by reminding himself of? He starts by reminding himself of the size of his God. So he starts by saying, you are God, you are God alone, and, and where all is he God over? He, he's God over Israel through a special covenant relationship, but he is king over the nations. So Isaiah, excuse me, Hezekiah is reminding himself that this God who he is praying to Hold sway over the heavens and the earth. 
There is nowhere his arm can't reach. There is no nation that his hand can't turn. There is nothing that is too big. There is nothing that is too hard. So it's a beginning with just an exaltation of the greatness of God. And he adds this phrase, that you're the one who dwells between the cherubim. What is that a reminder of? Okay, yeah, so I think there's, there's two directions that he could be pointing. One, remember how in the Old Testament, God promised Israel that, that he would be present with them. And the most uh, tangible place of God's presence would be in the most holy place. And of course, the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And what, what was on the ends of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherub. Two of them, cherubim, are at the ends of the Ark of the Covenant. And God had promised that he would meet with his people there. And so in saying this, you're the one who dwells between the cherubim. Hezekiah is reminding himself not only that God is great and that he reigns over the heavens, but he's also reminding himself that God is present with his people. The, the way it's described sometimes is God is both transcendent and God is imminent. God is both great and God is near. So listen, if God just reigned over the nations, but we had no access to him, how much would that help? Wouldn't help any. Well, if we had access to him, but he didn't reign over the nations, that wouldn't do any good either. And so what Hezekiah is doing here is he is reminding himself of both. This is a great God who is God alone, who reigns over the nations, and he meets with his people. This is the God who reigns between the cherubim. Now there's a second thing that could be connected to this, Remember, all of this is happening during the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. And do you remember that, that grand vision that Isaiah had years before this, that apparently he publicized, that he was vocal about? You remember Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it, he sees these two angelic beings that are volleying back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah had testified of this vision where he had seen the throne of God and he had seen angelic beings there at the throne where God dwells. And I wonder if when Isaiah says, you're the God who dwells between the cherubim. If, if we're not only meant to think of the Ark of the Covenant where God was present, but also we're meant to think of this vision that Isaiah had had just a few years before where he had seen God on his throne between these cherubim. So a big, a big part of this prayer is just Hezekiah um, relishing in the greatness of God. Listen to the way Ralph Davis describes this. He writes... He packs a three-point sermon into the opening lines of his prayer. And the twist is that it's not only true, but helpful. Is this not precisely what Hezekiah needs to remember in the present distress? What better way for Hezekiah to encourage Hezekiah than to rehearse God's majesty as he requests God's help? Speaking truth about God to God may stir up assurance in God. Do you get what he's saying there? Sometimes in prayer, one of the most important things we can do in our prayer is to magnify the greatness of God because not only is God glorified in that, but our hearts are fortified in that. 
as we remind ourselves of who God is in prayer, it honors God, but it also adds a little bit of rebar to our hearts. It reminds me of who this God is that I'm praying to, and I need to be reminded of that. So, so that's the first part of the prayer. But then the second part of the prayer is where he lays out what his need is. Incline your ear, O Lord. This is, this is lament. This sounds like something you would hear in Psalms of lament. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent. Notice how he keeps coming back to this point. Which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nation and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. Now, just stop, stop there for a minute. So what is Hezekiah acknowledging in this prayer now? He's pleading for God to help, of course. God, look. God, hear. God, engage. God, again, they're reproaching you. But what else does he affirm? He affirms that what the Assyrians have claimed is true. They really have been crushing the nations. All of the gods that these nations claim to cling to have been dust before the Assyrian Empire. But there's one important point that he wants to add about all these gods that they've crushed. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. What's, what point is he making there? I'm all over the place on my overhead. What's the point he's making? Yeah. So, so he's saying, yeah, they've crushed those nations and they have wiped out all the gods of those other nations. The only problem is all those other gods aren't gods at all. They're men's inventions. So crushing all those other gods doesn't seem all that impressive anymore, does it? If they're not, this is like somebody bragging about their football team and you saying they might have won all their games. They haven't played anybody yet. Well, that's what he's saying here. Yeah, you might have crushed all of these other gods, but they're not gods. You, there's only one God, and you're about to face that God now. Okay, so he's reminding them of who the true God is, that all these gods they've conquered don't actually exist. And again, it makes me wonder, uh, we won't turn to it now, but it makes me wonder if, if Hezekiah has been listening to the sermons of Isaiah. Because if you've ever read through the book of Isaiah, one of the the soapbox is a bad word, but one of the soapboxes that Isaiah lives on in that book is he is constantly making this distinction between the gods of the nations and the God of Israel. You know how he's, he's saying things like, they take their block of wood and with one part they put it in the fire and they cook their meal, and then with the other part they carve a God and they fall down before it and worship it. So with one half they're keeping themselves warm and with the other half they're worshiping. And he keeps making the point that all these gods they worship don't exist. They're worshiping fantasies. They're worshiping images that they created. So, so for the Assyrians to, to claim that because they beat these other gods, they can beat Yahweh, that that's not comparing apples and oranges, that's apples and orangutans. It's two different categories. Those gods aren't real. Now they're coming up against the real God. Okay, and so Hezekiah is asking now the real God to get involved on behalf of his people. And then the third part of the prayer is he 